If we take a look back just a few hundred years in our real world history at maps, there are large portions of unexplored space. This shows up in one of two ways. Either you literally just have, here be dragons, <laughs> you know, just an empty blank wall, or you have a contraction, an artificial contraction of space, which, you know, removes all of North America from the map because they didn't know it existed. <laughs> you know, there, there's, um, there, there are cues to how the culture sees things. Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicki Lawn, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. Have you ever opened up a book and found a beautiful illustrated map inside the cover? Bonus points if it's in color and in rich detail. Sometimes it's reason alone to buy the book. If you love maps and you're in the right place, writer and founder of the Roundtable Writers, Odin Halverson, joins me to talk about maps in speculative fiction. From hyper-realistic to the fantastical, how do maps contribute to your overall story? And what are some important things to consider when creating one? So Odin, um, tell me about yourself and particularly about today's topic, which is about maps. You said you went to school about this topic. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I went to I went to school for a master's in fine arts and creative writing through uh, the University of Southern Maine's Stone Coast program, which is a really really cool program, very original, very eclectic. And it's one of the few programs in the country, actually in the world, that deals with speculative fiction and deals with it in a way that's very positive. <laughs> cool. I love that. So yeah. like a whole area of study where you just talk about speculative fiction and in your case, particularly maps and how maps are created for stories. That became my thesis. That became my uh, my part of my final project. So I was writing a, a fantasy novel and alongside that i was doing this very close inspection of how geography was treated within tolkien's kind of larger legendarium his whole work and why that type of geography can be so important for writers of any genre not just fantasy and science fiction but any genre to pay attention to i mean how many times have we read a book set in new york and you're like okay you've never been to new york <laughs> i haven't been to new york and i know that you you've never been to new york <laughs> that's such a good point i read a, a young adult series that took place in my town in arizona and they specifically mm -hmm. talk about a, a road where a car gets trapped on the railroad tracks except mm -hmm. if you lived here you'd know that was the one road that does not actually cross the railroad tracks <laughs> and it drove me crazy <laughs> oh, like the one road guys come on yeah <laughs> <laughs> yep and so what got you um what got you interested so when you were told you have to do this project and you're like all right maps maps is where it, where it's at what fueled that passion well, I, luckily, I was able to go ahead and really choose my choose to follow my passion. So, you know, I was able to go to my uh, my thesis advisor and say, hey, I have this interest in maps. Can I do something with it? And she said, this is so cool. I can't wait to hear about it. Uh, but where that started for me as like a original concept really has to do with my just my overarching love of science fiction and fantasy. And the way that maps specifically were treated within science fiction. Um, so actually, my love of maps in fantasy came from the fact that there weren't that many maps explored in science fiction. Or when they were, they were often explored in this uh, very loose way where uh -huh. I, I'm... I think it was J. Michael Straczynski's point that uh, <laughs> when he was at, when he was asked how fast one of his starships went, the White Star starship in his Babylon Five TV series, he said it moves at the speed of plot. <laughs> nice, because <laughs> very, very, well it's very useful, and I, I think that for for his world he took so much care in making sure that time was paid attention to and travel mm -hmm. and distance 
that that's okay. If every once in a while there's a bit of a, you know, deus ex machina and things appear when they need to appear, that's fine. But then there are so many instances where maps and science fiction, because we're dealing with such huge areas, huge space and the time distance, uh, they just get ignored. <laughs> it's such a good point because I brought two examples of maps for our conversation and neither of them are sci-fi. And <laughs> I'm realizing that sci-fi actually is a great opportunity for maps. The ones that I really like tend to be kind of futuristic or like cyberpunk versions of cities. Mm -hmm. And why, like, why not create a map of a city with its cyberpunk attributes? Like, like it lends itself very nicely to a map. Absolutely. I think, you know, dealing with any type of landscape, once again, whether we're dealing with a real world location where the details, the details really lend the credence to the story, right? They, they help, inform the reader they connect the reader to a physical space and they they give the reader that sense that this is a real location with real time inherent in the location um but when you do that in fantasy or science fiction it's even more important because we're already dealing with a constructed landscape that's such a good point because it's it's a fictional world and you're inviting someone into it on a fa the fantasy level but mm -hmm. could you open up a book look at a map and in a few seconds go this is a good story can you tell? That's that's an interesting question, actually. I think you can, in a certain sense, based upon the, you know, based upon some other subtle cues. So in um, Larry Niven's Ringworld book, for instance, you're dealing with a, this was back in like 19, 1970s, don't quote me on the exact date, but <laughs> when he was writing this, and wh whatever flaws the rest of his books <laughs> have with regards to many issues, one interesting point was how the landscape was specifically described solely through the character's experience of the landscape. So just within the text, there's no map. The only reference that readers get beyond that map to the fact that there's something really awesome happening in the landscape is the cover art that shows this fascinating kind of curve, you know, a hyperbolic curve up into the horizon. And of course, that is the ring world, a world that is built artificially built around a star. So you don't need a map for that. You just need to experience that viscerally from within the character's perspectives. I will say that there are times where maps can also be overused and can stand in for <laughs> for um, less than adequate writing uh -huh. in terms of geography, and that is a uh, that is a very dangerous zone that a lot of writers can trip into. Uh, yeah, yes, <laughs> I have made kind of a casual observation of that too when I read when I open up a book and so much work got put into like the illustrations and it's gorgeous. And then mm -hmm. I look at like, maybe how did the book do? Um, how, how is it doing in reviews? You know what I mean? And maybe yes. it's a bit of a hot mess. And, um, <laughs> but at least you've got a gorgeous map. <laughs> when you, when you look at a map, what do you, what's like the first thing you look for? Hmm. I'd say there's, there's really, there's two aspects to it. One, I look for just kind of the depth of a map that's really the most important thing to me overall because the depth of the map informs to a certain extent the depth at which the world is going to be constructed now not, not always i am making a generalization here for all the listeners who just threw their computer across the room <laughs> i am making a generalization but i think it's important to pay attention to how a map is constructed with regards to depth and what i mean by that is if we take a look at for instance, Tolkien maps, especially maps of the Shire, we see signs, we see references, symbolic references within the map to a depth of time and within that depth of time, a depth of culture. So we know, for instance, that the old forest, it's old from the relative perspective of the hobbits who were making the map. We understand that there's a the hedge all in capitals, all bordering that old forest. We, we understand that these things are references that are important to that culture. And from just those two things, we understand that there's something dark and something kind of strange and otherly about this forest that is intentionally kept at bay by the hedge. And then from within that, we, we understand that here's this farthing, here's that farthing, here are all these locations that are mapped and known and clearly clarified for the people who made the maps within the world. Whereas in a lot of the less accurate mapping, we can end up just sort of seeing these broad strokes of things that are, are made because they look good, but they're not really dealing with that level of subtlety. 
Okay. And so How do you it's pick almost that like, apart? Yeah. <laughs> if, so it's like if you were to create a map that reflected the society's current understanding of the geography, showing that there are things that have history, things that they may not know otherwise about, mm-hmm. versus a map where everything's labeled and, you know, like, it, Am I kind of on the right track? (laughs) Very much. I mean, uh, let's take a look, especially, this is especially true for fantasy and science fiction, which so often deal with large areas of unexplored space, you know, uh, unexplored geography. So if we take a look back just a few hundred years in our real world history at maps, there are large portions of unexplored space. This shows up in one of two ways. Either you literally just have, here be dragons, (laughs) you know, just an empty blank wall, or you have a contraction, an artificial contraction of space, which, you know, removes all of North America from the map because they didn't know it existed. <laughs> you know, there, there's, um, there, there are cues to how the culture sees things. Oh, there, a great example is actually in Stanley Kim, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy, okay. where you can see the kind of through these different books you see a different layering of the importance of geography for the people on mars where the first time it's all it's all it's all landscape it's all the actual mountains and the valleys right you know what is right there the second book we start to really see examples of the human impact the cities and those are made prominent and then finally in the third one we actually see the results of mars terraforming where new lakes have been created and new patches of green exist so we're able to actually watch in development over the course of this long time span the development of the geography and that's something that's really exciting so when you were doing your studies for your your project, how much did you parallel or look at real maps? Ooh, a lot. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> a lot. Um, you know, this is this is another interesting area. So I, I kind of hop skipped back from a lot of the a lot of modern work on maps. So modern conceptions of maps, which I think you know, because you said you worked in this kind of field, right? You've got a lot of detail, a ton of depth can actually appear within a map, which is really impressive on, you know, a 2D scale, right? But with every single line, you've got the ability to have, uh, you know, elevation, you've got the ability to have so much depth within these maps. You don't often see that in fantasy maps. Mm, But what you do see are Kind of what I was referencing before, the depth that comes from naming. So I actually went farther back and started to specifically look at how landscapes were portrayed within very, very early maps, including oral representations that were then written down. So specifically, the Icelandic sagas. And if we take a look at the sagas, the landscape is incredibly important as an organizing structure. It is something that gives both a cultural and a space-time reference for the people, both the characters in the sagas and the people who are going to be reading those sagas. So when we, as modern people, look back at the sagas, we can actually understand what the landscape looked and even felt like just by understanding that relationship, by kind of archaeologically digging away and figuring out what that relationship was, we can actually experience a little bit of what it was like to be someone in all of the eras that those, you know, those stories were created. Yeah, when you're looking at real world maps and comparing them to like fantasy or science or fictional maps, I should just generalize Mm -hmm. that. And in reference to uh, what the point you brought up. Yes. So I work I get a lot of exposure to maps. I also get a lot of bird's eye view of community building in my day job. And one of the things I always think about is, you know, you can always tell when a map doesn't quite reflect the closest it can get to reality when things just feel kind of just placed, you Mm -hmm. know, and for example, where I, where I work, it's, it's kind of a flat plain, but we're surrounded by mountains. And it was a hotbed for Native American um, communities way back in the day, because when it rained, it brought all the water rushed down to that area. What happened after the Native Americans were no longer populating this area, and it became farmland, because mm. naturally, all that same exact water <laughs> comes mm. down and feeds that, that um, the farmland. And then when you talk about corridors that w- w- go through that land, now we're, in, we're introducing some interesting challenges because of those very same conditions so we have a freeway that comes through and that section of the freeway gets flooded no no other area you know what i mean and (laughs) 
So then when we start to build houses in that area, that same exact water pattern creates a flood, a floodplain. And so now you have to create housing developments, commercial developments that cater to and create drainage. You know, this is very simple and I'm only talking about water, but it tells you how one in like one geographical landmark can significantly alter the events of what happens in the area and continue to affect them as society evolves. Absolutely. I, I love I love hearing you talk about this because you are clearly like an expert in this area. And there there is actually something really exciting about understanding this. I think a lot of people, they hear maps and they go, oh, yeah, that's that's nice. I, I, why would I need that? I've got Google. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you are missing the point, man. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Could you imagine yeah. if you're like, I just want to plop a house down right here and not really understand, you know, all the things yeah. that can affect you because of those conditions? Yeah, absolutely. I remember I remember being a kid. Oh, God, I must have been about 11 or so. And I, my family was trying to find a, a new place to to rent. And we actually got a weird lead on some place that we were thinking we might be able to buy and it was up northern up in northern California. So we went and visited it and gosh, beautiful landscape, golden Rohan esque hills, you know, it's just the, the, the best that northern California has to offer except for two problems. One, every five years, there's a massive firestorm that sweeps those hills like nobody's business and turns it all to ash. So small, small issue. Yeah. Number two, the nearby lake was filled with mercury. No. <laughs> so, yeah. How? So why was the land so cheap? You know, uh, from an old mine, from old mining practices. From old mining practices. Wow. Which is a whole nother problem on, uh, you know, uh, e ecological issues described within geography. But <laughs> so if you were to create a fictional world and you happen to have a mining town nearby, then you got to start mm -hmm. thinking about your water sources, the impacts of the yep. surrounding areas. And yeah. right now with like the drought in California, um, I saw footage of just ash falling from the sky. And that's something <sighs> you guys deal with. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so it's so fun. <laughs> Have you ever wondered what it's like to live, you know, on the edge zone of one of those, you know, dark lord realms in fantasy? It's right here <laughs> in Northern California. <laughs> Northern Cali. <laughs> Come for the Dark Lord, everybody. <laughs> oh. So I have a fun exercise, and this I figure we can go back. I only I only brought two maps, and you told me about one map. Do you have any more maps, or is that the one map? I have. I mean, I can talk about a few of the ones that I've collected for sure. Okay. Um, so awesome. yeah, cool. Lead on. So <laughs> we are going to talk about some of our favorite maps, and while we're talking about them, we're going to think about some things like why do we love of this map and how does this map functionally serve the characters and the story mm -hmm. um, because ultimately it all comes down to the narrative uh, that you're writing and everything kind of has to, to serve the, those characters so mm -hmm. do you want to go first uh sure yeah okay. i'd be happy to um well why don't i i have two here that i, I want to talk about so why don't i briefly just kind of go over um, what i love about narnia and oz as maps okay <laughs> So it, for our listeners, if you want to pull it up on Google, I'll also try to post uh, these maps on social media. So for both Narnia and Oz, we are dealing less with direct, uh, like geological, geographic importance, and we are more dealing with the realm of the imagination, the realm of ideas. But why are these maps even there? One of the really cool things about the uh, C.S. Lewis map that he that he had for Narnia is actually that it shows that Narnia is just part of a much vaster landscape, a much vaster world. So we have, you know, this very focused story. A lot of people just think of Narnia when they think of Narnia, but they might not realize that there are there's a massive ocean that's traveled through that right underneath Narnia, there's Archenland. You know, there are wild lands to the north. There are these stand in zones within his geography that have different feels to them different you could almost call them different kind of mythic archetypes laid on to the landscape itself and aslan actually only really exists as a character within narnia which is really important as a reference point for the stories that come later when the characters are traveling to other lands and they are told to specifically watch out for a character who knows who Aslan is, because that character is the character you need to trust. 
right? Because okay. Anla, Aslan doesn't exist anywhere else outside of Narnia. So we, we actually see this, this interesting border, these interesting borders that are created within this very, uh, almost silly, very magical sort of otherworldly geography. Um, so that, that's one of the maps that I want to talk about simply because it's, it's different than what a lot of people think of when they think of maps. I'm not talking here about all the depth that I was talking about in Tolkien's work or real world stuff. I'm talking purely about that realm of the imagination and how we can actually learn to divide that up to create story, which is really an exciting space gotcha. for writers. A really good introduction too for especially children who are getting into understanding maps. So I'm looking much. at I'm looking at a Narnia map right now. I see Arch and land at the south. Mm-hmm. We have Lantern Waste up in the northwest. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Ettensmore. Did I say that right? Ettensmore. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Up in the north. And then what looks like just brown. Maybe this is what you were talking about, where it just kind of like fades away. What's to the east of Narnia? Yeah. So if you're heading off towards the east, you are looking at the ocean. So you've okay. got um, you've got the the great eastern ocean I heading see, off ocean. off towards the the right side of your map there. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And that's so, that's where like the voyage of the dawn trader and all of the treader and all of that takes place. Gotcha. So with Narnia, Narnia, the the general Narnia area, that's like in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But then in some of the other books, you start adventuring off into the other lands. Absolutely. And actually, in the very first book in the kind of the Narnia canon, you are here in the real world and you're actually you're actually in a a sort of liminal zone in between worlds and a completely different fictional science fiction-esque world somewhere off in the galaxy. So there's actually a lot of depth that he plays with in terms of location within his geography. That that distant science fiction-esque world is actually where the queen comes from. Mm. So you've got you've got some really interesting uh, stuff that he's playing with through through his use of geography. When you have a map and a world a lot of what we're doing is world building when you are dealing with a very fantasy based map like how do you know that it's grounded enough to work as a story and how do you know when it's too fanciful too out there to really be effective that's a really good question you know too fanciful that 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 is that is probably a hard boundary to define specifically because what you're trying to tell is the story in that case is going to start to matter the most. So for Lewis, he is working purely within this realm of mythic parable. And he's, you know, he's pulling from every possible dimension to the point where Tolkien was, was frankly getting annoyed with him. He was like, man, you can't have talking beavers and this, what, what is Jesus lion doing here? You know, he's getting very frustrated with his friend. And, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis is like, hey, well, they're kids. Look, they, they don't care. Why, why should we? And so when you're, especially when you're working, I think, with a realm like this, and I'm just, I'm not just meaning that it's only important for children either. What I'm meaning is maps like this can help any reader access that sort of inner childlike experience of the world where we stop caring, caring so much about the specificity and we're allowing ourselves as the reader to dive into the mythic, truly dive into a world of the unknown and the excitement of that. So what, you know, for instance, if we're looking at this, you know, what are the wild lands of the north right above the Ettenmoor in Narnia? Like, what does that mean? That, that evokes that name. You know, mm-hmm. so now we're in the realm of naming and symbology again. What what does that evoke for the reader? That's exciting, especially if you're 10 years old. <laughs> <laughs> well, that gets me thinking about, I was thinking this about one of my examples, which is Westeros, but like how mm-hmm. on the nose some of these names tend to be because you're, intru- you're introducing us who have no idea. We don't live here and we have to be able to like jump in quickly and there's a mm-hmm. lot of information that gets thrown at us at once so what are your thoughts on like how on naming conventions Ooh, so this is this is once again back in like the area of all of this that I really love, and it connects directly to the Icelandic maps that I was studying for my uh, graduate thesis. Uh, a really good example, actually, of this, and I'm looking at my notes right now. Here is um, from the first written account of the discovery of North America from the kind of Western perspective where uh, in the deeds of the bishops of Hamburg, which was written by Adam of Bremen, we see this naming become extraordinarily popular. 
uh, within this account, we're actually seeing a lot of attention paid, not just to the geography, but to the names that were placed within that geography by the people who were, you know, discovering it for their own first time. <laughs> and that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about how landscape as an organizing structure is so important. These people were discovering areas that were new to them and they were giving them names and stories. They were building a definition of the land as they went through the land, right? Yeah. So uh -huh. you have, you have, uh, if we look at it to a lot of myths, we can see this happening in Ireland. You know, we have myths about the, the great giant coming across the, the strait there. And, you know, all of those landscape names that we still have today are based on these stories that we told each other for hundreds and maybe even thousands of years. So that kind of naming is really exciting for me as a writer, as a fiction writer. How can I suggest a thousand years of, of of history, of storytelling history within my story without, you know, writing a single paragraph about it? Well, one way, one way is to name correctly and to have that name evoke something that we're going to be familiar with through that kind of cultural hereditary experience of naming things in this way. Why not name everything after the founder? I, I, the first thing I would think is if I'm Lewis and Clark and I'm going through America and I'm like, I'm going to call this Lewis Forest, <laughs> Clark River, you know, like, and not that that's not the best idea or the worst idea in the world. But I'm like, I'm surprised it doesn't happen more. Honestly, I, I, I think if Elon goes lands and takes up land like land on the moon, I wouldn't be surprised if it was something related to his name or Tesla. You know what I mean? Like, I just like what definitely. Although, do we really want a section of Mars named Musk? <laughs> just <laughs> It's all in the branding. <laughs> I don't want to live there. <laughs> yes, yeah, so this place, it's really, uh, it's really musky. Yeah, it's not going to work for me. But uh, it's a great question. And I think, I think honestly, that's, that's a, a realm for some more, some more thought. My immediate sort of response would be that we are, once again, we're storytelling creatures. So if we want to tell someone about the cool thing that we found we're less likely to just say i went to halverson plateau and saw a bear done story over we're gonna talk about the bear we're gonna talk about the the epic fight that we had from it when we really ran away you know we're gonna talk about something that excited us and we're gonna try to express the emotional experience of visiting that location to whoever's listening it's that wow. oral tradition so i think you know even if even if i said this place is now mine unless i try to codify that within law what's going to exist and live on within stories is the story and maybe i'll survive in it if i was exceptionally cool yeah. <laughs> but otherwise probably not well and i could see how that would have more immortality to it versus let's say i named uh, a mountain vicky mountain and then someone didn't like me and they're like i'm gonna conquer <laughs> that mountain and it's gonna now be odin mountain and you know what i mean like the names will keep changing if it's constantly associated with a person because there's mm -hmm. that pride and but then if you if you do what you're saying which is let's call it bear valley we got attacked by this bear now that has like a legacy to it and it might have mm -hmm. way more legs absolutely absolutely anything that evokes that that kind of sense of wonder and that love of telling stories and that love of the unknown that's the kind of name that's going to stick around and it can be simple once again I'll, I'll reference Tolkien's the old forest we don't need to do much the hedge these are not deep symbolic names you know and yet they are and <laughs> that's what's so exciting and so cool and of course they also are in relationship to each other so if I have Bear Valley right next to the wastes you know that's going to evoke a very specific sort of experience if I have Bear Valley next to you know Paradise Falls that's a different type of experience in there too yeah. so as we layer the naming we start to evoke a deeper mythology and I think that you know, a lot of ancient explorers, a lot of, you know, not so ancient explorers too, would have been doing something sort of similar. Yeah, um, yeah. absolutely. So my first map that I wanted to bring up is the one I'm sure is very familiar to everybody. And uh, it's Westeros from Game of Thrones. However, I need to put a disclaimer at the beginning. I am a casual viewer. <laughs> I read the books years ago. I enjoy the maps and the art. I'm watching the House of the Dragon right now. If I get anything wrong, forgive me. In fact, 
correct me. Just write me on social media. We'll have a continued conversation on there. So um, anyway, with that, <laughs> with that being said. Good to have a disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll give a quick description on Westeros just in, for the audience that also hasn't seen the map. Um, it's an, it's an elongated map. People have likened it to the UK. You kind of have like this tall up down kind of um, orientation. We're talking just Westeros. I'm not including what's the other country called. See, I'm showing my, my <laughs> ignorance already. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> so, um, it's the map serves as a board for our characters to interact. So forests and roads become high or low traffic points. Castles become targets. Villagers and villages are pawns in a game of conquest. You can tell that whoever, George R.R. R. Martin, who wrote this map, wrote it with conflict in mind um, because that's what's reflected in a lot of the names. So like many fantasy maps, I feel like the characteristics and attributes of each region in Westeros are a caricature when you look at how varied they are in close proximity to each other and how they're toned for the, the the intention of the story. However, I live in America where you can drive for five hours staring at the same landscape. And I know that's not the case in the UK. So what do I really know? <laughs> okay, so I wanted to point out I can, and we can dedicate literally an entire podcast series to just this map alone. But for the sake of time <laughs> and this conversation, I wanted to touch on a few notable locations based off of their geography and living conditions. And I had some questions for you. Okay. Oh yes. So um, we'll start with King's Landing, which I find, which I think is like very, like a very typical, like where you would see the main capital of a, a country. It's located on Blackwater Bay. It's a good location. It's a harbor town. Goods and services coming in by the water. They're surrounded by walls. You can see how a harbor town got started and then built, 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 bigger, bigger, bigger. And uh, by now in the story of Game of Thrones, very populated, very dirty. And according to the author, he would say that it's equal to the size of medieval London or Paris, about half mm. a million people. So King's Landing kind of makes me think of New York, like a harbor town got started, built, built, built up. Do you think that they, that the book got it right as far as where King's Landing and where like the main capital would be located on that map? That's a really interesting question. Yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of poking my nose into a copy of this map right now. And in a, in a sense, if I'm looking at it right now, you've got you've got some of the right geography, you know, geographical features. You've got um sort of an inlet so you've got a place that's going to be sheltered from storms this is very important if you want a trading port you don't want it to be on a blank rocky coast because then everybody's dead yeah <laughs> um, so you know he did he did well there i mean if you take a look at the geography of his whole landscape there there's a lot of variation he's clearly thinking about how elevation you can't really see elevation in his map but you can see how elevation would work in relation to some of the rivers and where the mountain ranges generally are. Um, and as for as for that location specifically, the biggest question is, is it is it the best place in proximity to power structures, I guess, mm. for his novel, that's really the most important thing. And it's an important thing for real world trade as well. What actually defines Westeros as a major trade hub? What makes it a trade hub? And what's allowed the power structure to inform you know specifically that city king's landing as the trade hub yeah yeah you know. i so then the next location which is the riverlands the riverlands is right mm. in the middle and as its name states there's a lot of water there they have forests hills plains the land is rich and fertile and the word river is associated with much of their social system river lords river men river land riverlanders mm -hmm. um what i found to be interesting is there are no major cities here there's just small towns and i thought for sure that with a fertile land like this over the evolution of westeros a major settlement would have eventually laid claim to that spot there's a lot of resources so where i live in the desert you that's like literally where we would all be huddling <laughs> you know so do, do you think a land like the riverlands would have been further developed in the real world that's in the real world uh yeah almost certainly i mean we can see a lot of that happening in for instance rural china is a great place to look for kind of that mo a modern example of rural development if you have a lot of money and a lot of power and you have a lot of empty space that's really fertile you're going to start building things there because it just makes sense that's going to take time so there's that there's also the feudal nature of this society to take into account within the fantasy worlds um, that he created 
the Riverlands seem like they are kind of caught constantly, just like all of the rural areas. I mean, it, it really sucks to be a villager in here. It really does. I... <laughs> oh, it's so bad. It's like a, it becomes a really <laughs> shitty place. Like I think in the second book or something, when it's all getting burned down, yeah. it's terrible. I was really hoping that the 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 books would kind of switch and change and it would basically be this grand story of like communist rebellion because that I, I, I didn't care about any of the royal characters after like the first quarter of the story. And I was just yeah. like, can can we please stop having these poor defenseless villagers die? I'm like, by the end of the story, there's no villagers left. <laughs> like, we're no. just literally like, rolling family. <laughs> You've just got a bunch of, like, somehow randomly self-sufficient armies marching around forever. Yeah. It's very strange. <laughs> oh, my God. So true. <laughs> God, they would have, like, ran out of food if they're burning down their riverlands. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. You can't destroy the breadbasket. If you destroy the breadbasket, you starve. <laughs> so, especially when you're on an island. It's not like they, you know, they don't have any very many friends in other parts of the world, especially because they keep killing the delegates from the other parts of the world. <laughs> so, like, I mean, you are on an island. It's a big island. I get it. But still. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> That's so funny. Okay. Well, that was. I forgot. Were you in the middle of making a point or mild digression there? Okay, yeah. I, I had to release some anger on the <laughs> I just didn't want to move on and then your point didn't get made. <laughs> no, no, no. I think I think really just to kind of answer your question there, I think yeah, in the real world we would be seeing probably more development, but it also is a contextual thing. So if in the real world we have a breadbasket between two or three competing entities that are every couple hundred years socking the heck out of each other the breadbasket is going to be a very tenuous place that nobody is going to want anyone else to have complete control over because as soon as you do you can supply your army better and then you're going to win so mm -hmm. it'll be it'll be actually a hot point where nothing permanent can get built for anyone <laughs> absolutely okay then i have two other two other areas i want to cover because they're just mm. so interesting to me the iron islands they are a scattering of islands off the west coast of Westeros. They originally had their own king, eventually became a constituent region of the Seven Kingdoms. They, The land itself has a lot of iron ore. However, the residents living there say that the Iron Islands was named after their iron personalities. So they're rough, they're tough, and they're fierce seafarers. seafarers? I hope I said that right. I don't live by the ocean. I don't know these words. <laughs> Um, some islands are used for sheep grazing. Many are unpopulated, not very fertile lands. Oceans are violent. Mm -hmm. So this kind of feeds off of what you said earlier. What would you naturally expect from a civilization who grows up in these conditions? Is it sustainable? And mm -hmm. would they have migrated by now to the riverlands? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I think they'd certainly want to in a certain circumstance. But clearly what he's trying to build there is a cultural development that says this is our space we are the people of the iron islands raw we're proud of ourselves does he do that well enough might be a, a kind of a way to deepen the question <laughs> um and i'd i'd have, i'd really have to do a, a close inspection of the text to decide for myself but i think i think it's 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 fair but it does feel sort of um sort of surfacey it does feel sort of too intentional on the author's part, creating a an area once again that is intentionally designed to have conflict built into it. So what is otherwise a really interesting location, geog geographically speaking, lots of cool little islands there, a potentially interesting culture. Are we actually getting the depth out of it or are we just getting these people need to fulfill this role in my story, so I'm going to call them this and name them this and give them this culture? Good point. Good point. Because from my very rough memory of the books, it seems like the characters on the Iron Islands have a vendetta and they're angry and they kind of serve that kind of, you know, opponent role. And I just keep thinking, why are you still there? Like, it seems really <laughs> miserable. <laughs> you know, I as, a, as a, a really brief digression, there's another example of this within the King Killer Chronicles by Pat Rothfuss. I don't know if you've read those. I have not, but I've heard of it. They are they're fantastic books in many, many ways. And one of the things that I love about the second one the most is actually a culture that he creates that specifically moved to the most barren, rocky part of the world that it could, because everywhere else they were they, they were hounded. They were, you know, persecuted throughout this world. So they moved far away from the rest of the world intentionally. And mm. what the question there then is, how do you survive there? Why do you stay there? Well, they were shepherds. 
lots of grass, lots of rock. It worked fine for their sheep. What was the next thing that they did? They realized, okay, so we've been persecuted all this time. We need to have an export that makes us invaluable and allows us to defend ourselves. So they took this martial arts tradition that they had and they built it up over time further and further and further until they became superlative mercenaries and they hire themselves out to anyone who wants them. And the Adem, as they're called, then become a commodity in and of themselves. Their culture is the commodity. No one would ever invade them, A, because nobody wants their land. B, they are crazy warriors, so it would be really, really hard to, you know, to take them over. And C, then, then you're losing your best export against your own enemies, you know, the ability to hire a dead mercenary. So Pat answered that question very well within the world as a deep element of the world. And I, I just, I love it. <laughs> okay, then I'm... Then I'm realizing I'm sure the Iron Islands are providing minerals, maybe, to armies, and then they are useful that way. I'm going completely off memory, and I'm also half making this up. I- <laughs> <laughs> this is why, like, for, for these discussions, you start to have to close read every single text. So and I know someone's like, insane. actually, I'm like, well, <laughs> if you have a correction for me, send it to me. I will share it. <laughs> All right. And then the last one was mostly because there's always a exotic part of a map where things are just not as Aryan as the rest. This is Dorne. So Dorne is the southernmost peninsula of Westeros. Rocky, mountainous, dry and hot. The only desert in the continent. I relate. Uh, a large portion <laughs> is an arid wasteland, which I thought was interesting because then right away I'm like, um how far away is winterfell in the land of always winter from dorne when you can go from this arid desert to this like forever mm-hmm. winter mm-hmm. um i wish it was that close i guess you could go up a mountain and maybe get that uh <laughs> there are some rivers which help with fertility and so therefore civilization is closer to the water there is a cultural separation from the rest the rest of westeros um they're seen as exotic to the rest of the country with their food produce and customs and according to martin it was inspired by wales spain and palestine so I guess my general question is, let's see, where is my general question? I had a general question, then it went away. Okay. <laughs> what are your thoughts on situations like this where you have kind of like the exoticness kind of wrapped up in one little corner? Um, my other map, Legend of Zelda, also mm-hmm. does this, where there's like a <laughs> random corner where it's like this is all the other things <laughs> that are very well, mysterious. Yeah, there there is a there is a deeply problematic element to this that is incredibly complex because it's connected to how maps in the real world have been developed and how they are so frequently centered around a basically the colonizing force whatever the most powerful colonizing force is they are the ones who get to make the maps that are eventually going to get passed on um why this has become a trend within fantasy maps where that same process doesn't have to take shape that there there are a couple of a couple of things so one you've got i'd say a case of really unfortunate um orientalism that is taking place within our culture so you've got You've got you've got people who are not inspecting their own prejudices about how a world is constructed very clearly um to jump really quickly away from this to another landscape that i i know really well i'll actually take us over to frank herbert's dune okay and if we're taking a look at arrakis the world of dune where all the, the the big action takes place you're actually only looking at this little tiny, when you actually look at the map, you're only actually looking at this little tiny segment of kind of the North Pole. Everything beyond that is this kind of unknown blank canvas. We're talking about an entire planet here that's considered an unknown blank canvas. The little tiny area is the colonizer's map. Mm. It is intention, and, and Herbert did this intentionally for, for all of his weirdness being an NRA touting conservative. He was an ecologist first and foremost, and he did have this really potent way of exploring and explaining that colonizer's kind of attitude and how limited it is when you're actually looking at the world. Yeah. Here on Westeros, I don't really see that same sort of inspection taking place. I do see maybe 4,000 miles, you know, of kind of vertical territory here on the map that I'm looking at. So there is enough for it to pass through several really major you know, uh, climate zones. Yeah. Uh huh. Wow. If if he if he hadn't 
made the culture down there quite so generic if he hadn't made all of his cultures quite so generically based on a real world culture in that kind of same geographic environment i wouldn't have the, quite the same issue that i do and once again you know hey people can correct me i am not a, i'm not a westeros expert i am not a, a you know an expert on his work uh mainly because i i don't like his work that much <laughs> <laughs> sorry jr uh, but you know um i i do i do think that there there's a lot of thought given to it but i think that it can unfortunately tend to be a little too close to how the how the real world functions in a certain sense and therefore you're not actually inspecting things you're just making tropes of the characters mm -hmm. who live there so that's that's my that's my short hot take excellent point um <laughs> let's talk about your oz <laughs> sure um so oz oz is a, a great one and this actually spirals off onto another map that i'm I'd love to just briefly talk about as well. And we're talking so with, about the wonder, the, the marvelous land of Oz and the Wizard of Oz. The marvelous land of Oz and the Wizard of Oz okay. is one of those great kind of maps that, once again, it, just like um, Lewis's, is a map that is completely uh, based in the realm of the imagination of the story. So we're not looking at physical geography again okay. um this is this is one of the ones that i wanted to highlight kind of earlier though in relationship to c.s lewis's so we're you know we're kind of taking the uh, discussion back back a step there we we could we could look at uh this other map that i'm actually very excited to explore which is the map from Werner vingy's zones of thought novels okay these guys there th th these different maps that he's created are really lovely and unique on two levels. One, they stylistically reference a lot of the fantasy maps that we're used to. And they do that through a very simple line portrayal. It's all ink and white paper, black ink, white paper portrayal of his galaxy, of an entire galaxy. And this is the image that you had sent me, right? Yeah, I'm looking yeah, at that's that the right one now. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Um, and I, I'm only jumping to this because I think it it both touches on some of what I'd say about Oz and it jumps us into the realm of science fiction maps in particular, which just just they, they don't get enough love. <laughs> no, I love this. I don't think I've ever seen a galaxy map before. And I'm like, why isn't this happening more? Maybe I'm reading the wrong books. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's actually so this is this is a great, a great point. Um there's been a lot of a lot of thought about this from people who are interested in maps. I think his name was Jonathan Crow. He's a uh, maps historian. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Crow is his last name. He's a maps like historian, uh, a scholar of fantasy fictional maps. And he made the point that maps in a fantasy story tell you what kind of story you're going to get. First off, you're going to get the kind of fantasy story that has a map. <laughs> <laughs> and then within that, you can pick out a lot more textual cues about what kind of story you're actually going to get. So you might have C.S. Lewis's really vague, broad dimensions of like, you know, general area and very imaginative. Or you might have, you know, Tolkien or um, Martin's kind of very specific, tied into the world, more detail oriented kind of thing. Um, with science fiction, you don't really see that same sort of continuity. You don't see the same sort of maps drawn specifically because we're dealing, at least this is my theory, specifically because you're dealing with such a huge amount of space. So for instance, last night I watched uh, the final episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where, uh, season four, season four, where uh, the Klingon Empire is having a civil war and they're being aided by the Romulans. And Starfleet sends some ships into the Romulan border, the Romulan-Klingon border, to try to stop the Romulans from secretly getting supplies into the Klingon, you know, the Klingon rebels' hands. Okay, fine. Woohoo, that's that's cool. Neat story. They do this by having a bunch of Federation starships strung out along the border with a net. Now, you can clearly see that whoever read this was a, a fan of World War II era kind of naval logistics because two-dimensional nets don't work in three-dimensional space. 
<laughs> so, uh, you know, this this highlights the problem that I think anyone dealing with three dimensional space has is just conceptualizing it and then conceptualizing story onto it. Right. So if mm -hmm. our stories come from a tradition of landscape and a tradition of naming the places that we're moving through, how does that work when you're moving through literally light years of functionally empty space? Interesting. Right. So here, what Werner Vinge did is really awesome. He, in his, in, his, um, in his books, Fire Upon the Deep and the others that followed, he has what he calls the zones of thought within a galaxy. The farther you go out from the kind of the dense center of the galaxy, the uh, more advanced the potential technology can get. That is because within these different zones of thought, different natural laws of physics apply. It's fascinating. It's really exciting. He himself is a, a computer scientist and physicist. So there's a, there's a lot of really neat detail that gets put into into all of this. And we, for instance, here on Earth would be within the slow zone. We can only travel at the speed of light. We've uh -huh. got a lot of limitations. But you go up one level and you're dealing with artificial intelligences that are truly intelligent. You are dealing with faster than light communication. Uh, because of the conditions it took to even get there. Exactly right. Yeah. So once you're once you're up in that zone, you're in that zone, and your technology limits expand dramatically because the laws of physics are functionally different. Ah. The, the speed of light is no longer a constant in that area. I see. So I see the I see the slow zone. I see mm -hmm. the beyond, and I see the unthinkable depths. <laughs> the unthinking depths. Yeah. Oh, the yeah. unthinking. Sorry. No, no. <laughs> I can read. <laughs> uh, to the Maybe I can't read the font to the Mel Med Magellanic clouds. Yeah, so you're you're then you're you're kind of looking away at other like little okay. satellite galaxies, like you know, you're looking farther and farther away from our Milky Way. So his wow. example in here is like if you if you were looking at this map, you would be kind of looking at a sort of there there it's split in half there's there's a two-dimensional layer like a cross section and then there's a top-down cross section mm -hmm. yeah the best way to think about it is the closer you get towards kind of the the galactic rim the actual spiral the uh the plane rather of the galaxy and the core of the galaxy that's where you start to hit the slow zone and the unthinking depth so there's a rough correlative in between star density and the laws of physics so okay. the farther you away get you away you get from star density, the more the laws of physics change. Essentially, and as a writer, you have a lot more creative freedom out in those zones outside so of the much, slow zone. But also within the limitations of it. So all of these stories you'd think would take place in the uh, you know the beyond and the you know whatever else is beyond the beyond, right? But they don't. They almost always take place within the ever fluid area between the slow zone and the beyond so the that area moves in his stories kind of like a tide on an ocean is always kind of going in and out yeah so it's actually the limitations those barriers of limitations caused by the world that he's constructed here that create all of the tension for his tales which is my ultimate point regarding uh science fiction maps people ignore the space because they think gosh it's not it's not there's no tension here i'm dealing with you know a bunch of emptiness i just want to skip to the end we have this showing up so often much to my annoyance with jj abrams work across the board <laughs> so he took he took streksinski's at the speed of plot line and he just magnified it times the power of a billion he was like all right so i want this thing to happen so it happens cool we're done we're, we're there we see this happen a lot in modern science fiction where they just jump to the end without having any of the middle because they think the middle isn't tense and is boring. And as writers, they're trained to skip immediately to the human emotional fiery tension. Mm -hmm. In this story and others like it, we're actually dealing with the tension of time and space itself. We see this a lot in Ursula K. Le Guin's work as well in her Hainish cycle, where we're dealing with not geography we're dealing with time which is kind of in my opinion for storytellers the most important function of geography beyond naming for cultural purposes so in lord of the rings knowing how long it takes to get to one place to another 
it doesn't just say, cool, here are locations that they experience along the way. It says, here is the actual process of the journey that they take. Here is why that matters. Here is how things develop because of that time. And when you stretch it out over light years, you're just stretching that out even more. Um, in the beginning of one of, I, I know I'm talking a lot here. <laughs> I get very excited about the subject. But in the beginning of one of Ursula K. Le Guin's uh, short stories, we have a character who gets transported to another another part of the galaxy from her world. And her world's been cut off from the rest of the galaxy for a very long time. So she's a primitive person, believes in magic, right? You know, that's the kind of the thing we're working off of. Um, what's so heart-wrenching about that tale is she goes away and she comes back and two generations have passed. Oh, yeah. So we're dealing with the fairy tale experience, but through the lens of science fiction and that that is so poignant and so touching and raises the hairs on the back of my neck every time that I read it. So there, there's my fundamental thesis argument is tension can actually come from the landscape itself, even if the landscape, and maybe even especially if the landscape is light years across. What did you think of Ince uh, not Inception? Interstellar. What did you think of Interstellar? Ooh, that was a that was a great one. I know Their a lot use of people of time. had. Yeah, a lot of people had like qualms about that uh, that movie, but I, I got a I got a huge kick out of it. I think that they did a great a great job with that. Um, they, they you know they're playing with a trope that's really heavily used in that type of intellectual science fiction, and I think they did a great job of not going overboard. If that makes mm -hmm. any sense, by the time you get to the end, there you really I found it to be if not a complete reveal a delightful way of explaining the sort of moral point of the story yeah and they used they used time and space to do that i mean they used time and space to create a space-time parable that is yes. just lovely <laughs> i because it, it comes it becomes about like uh, the time you lose mm -hmm. to do to be truly to go out there and save the world right you lose your own time you lose the time that you could have been with your daughter who was growing up and then you lose time when you're on that mountain right or not that mountain that planet with all the wave mountains yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> every second's like a year on earth i don't remember but like when you start to realize how time is so fleeting and how that is really like it's like a it's an enemy it's something to be feared um as as a point of tension when you're space traveling i, I mean i walked away from it feeling very appreciative of the time and the seconds that I get to experience right now. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, they did a beautiful job with that film. Kudos, guys, if you're listening. <laughs> so my last my last map does not require a full depth <laughs> breakdown. It was more of my version of like, I, my Game of Thrones map was like a nice analysis comparing it to real world because it's it was attempting to recreate real world locations. So mm. being able to kind of mm -hmm. draw that. This map is more about your actual experience as a gamer. So I'm talking about the Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild map of, of um, Hyrule. Oh, this is great. Have you played the game? I, I have. It's been a while, but I, I definitely have. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, of course, the reason why I love this map is because you're a player in the world and you get to make use of natural resources. This is not unique to this game, obviously, but I would say it's the first time that you get to experience it on this scale for a Zelda game. Um, different foods and items can be collected in different parts of the map, which makes you appreciate the biodiversity. And for children playing the game, it's a nice introduction to food sources as well as cultural diversity. So as a character, you have to accomplish certain tasks throughout the map and your adversaries reflect the attributes of those areas. So ice creatures and ice mountains, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, in Game of Thrones, we had King's Landing as a harbor town, harbor city, along the edge of the country because you know it benefits from the trade routes and the natural development that could have happened like New York City for example <laughs> here you have Hyrule Castle dead center in the map where mm -hmm. a lot of rivers have come together and it creates a moat around it and so surrounded by it you have your regions and they're they're mostly identified by their their climates so the northwest is I'm going to butcher these names Hebra which is an icy region northeast is Akala where you have forests and lakes and grassy plains and all that stuff southwest mm -hmm. is Gerudo Valley which is the when we think of Dorne in Westeros <laughs> and then yeah. along the southeast stretch you have Faron, Lanairu and Nakluda which are like lush river lands so um my I had an overarching question for this map which was where is the separation between realism and fantasy when it comes to maps 
where do you have to let go of reality to tell a good story? Oh, I love that question. Right. Well, here we clearly have, we have a, a, a mythology, a mythos that's pretty well developed within all of those different Zelda games. There's a lot of stuff going on there. You can actually see a lot of the depth that's been created. It's interesting for one thing because it's a completely bordered map. So it is, a, you know, there's maybe some hint that there's something else in the world, but not much. It's mostly, this is the world. We're going to pay attention just to this. Will there be anything else? You'll have to wait for a future game. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> we actually kind of see that within the Elder Scrolls games as well, especially the early ones where they're like, here is the world, you know, and yeah, it's connected to the rest of the world, but you don't really get to see it or pay attention to it. Um, but we also have this heavy concentration of kind of mythic features within a single map. So we've got the world of the known in the center, surrounded by all of those little lakes and rivers, and it's clearly the place to be it's the nice zone right mm -hmm. then you have you have mythic, mythic desert land mm -hmm. mythic forest land mythic ocean land <laughs> you know we've we've got these these very big archetypes that are being played out on the map i think that's fine honestly i mean what the ultimate thing is there are no rules with writing for anybody listening to this who's going, oh, God, my fantasy map that I'm trying to write, you know, fantasy story I'm trying to write doesn't have a good map. I'm a failure. No, just just write the dang thing. Have fun. Mm -hmm. I think where it can become really useful, let's let's go in that direction, where it become really useful is if you want to highlight specific types of mythic archetypal tension within your story. So if you really want to you know, highlight different struggles in nature, different, you know, uh, alchemical forces within nature, you can have the, the avatar, the land of fire and the land of earth. You can, you can, you can separate things up in that way. Mm -hmm. And here we see that very clearly. I mean, what, what's the, uh, the big, uh, terrifying place, death mountain. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so we've, we clearly have, we have a lot to consider with the fact that directly next to the great Hyrule forest, you've got Death Mountain. Mm -hmm. um, what's interesting here is there's also like roads spread throughout everywhere, including all the way up to Death, Death Mountain. So Death Mountain can't be that terrifying a place if there's a uh, tourist destination directly yes. <laughs> you know, to it. <laughs> like, I, think, I think that that's one of the things that we can start to explore from this map. This is a map that for me, looking at it, has an instant sense of play which makes sense it's a game map it has a sense of fun and it's also compressed down by the needs of the game itself in order to create all of the different environments that it wanted to so what are you trying to do in your story is ultimately going to come down to how good of a writer are you how much have you practiced how much have you read what are you trying to do as as a storyteller and this kind of map is going to lead you to creating a very different type of story if you started with it than if you didn't. And it's going to be a product of a very particular type of story if you didn't start with a map and just wrote this story and then created the map afterwards. Mm. So kind of a long form explanation, but. <laughs> no, I think that's great. How can we learn from real world maps when creating our fictional maps? Mm. It depends upon what your goal is, I think. Okay. So you had this great, I, I loved your water flows explanation. Drinking while you're drinking water. <laughs> I clearly like to talk. So. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I loved your water flows explanation of, you know, looking at a real world map because it's sure it's just one thing. It's just one element of real world mapping but it has such a huge effect. Everything that we do stems from that understanding those water flows, right? I think that um, we have to peel back the layers as we're creating a map for a story, especially if we're gonna start with it. We have to understand that we're not gonna be able to create the same depth and that's okay. Maps are a representation. They're a symbolic representation of ideas and we take it from there. So. We've talked about names. We've talked about some ways to create some of that depth. And we've also talked really briefly about how we could, uh, you know, create depth from perspective. So the Hobbit's map of the Shire is going to be very different than the map of the Shire from the people in Rohan who 
don't even know that hobbits exist, right? So there's a there's going to be a difference of perspective. Imagine if Sauron wrote a map. It's like <laughs> his center and then our underlings, underlings, underlings. Mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think as writers when we're going into this, you know, assuming let's assume that we wanted to start with a rough map. First off, we need to understand that the map is going to need to change a bit based upon where we take the story. And then we're going to need to, as we continue to develop the story and the map together, one, keep the map fixed, because we're going to want to really create the sense of solidity and depth of space and time. So once you've really decided that it takes two weeks to get from, you know, point A to point B, you better make sure that it takes two weeks, you know, yes. figure out why and how. And then allow there to be those blank spaces that we don't necessarily see as much on a modern map allow there to be those spaces that aren't as well defined and just make sure make absolutely sure that you as the writer and the characters who are inhabiting the world are aware that this is a perspective not an absolute because that's where we start to fall into the realm of the colonizer mindset of this is the way things are and it's clearly not so with all of that i think you can go forwards and create some really exciting maps to go alongside your stories and where can i go for like resources and actually drawing and creating a map that's a great question i mean there there are a lot of them out there honestly if you just search you know if you google search map making software you will find 15 different types of software that are currently doing it i i haven't found any really good open source software free and open source software which is usually what i try to recommend to people so there are paid options out there which i uh, you you can find them yourselves <laughs> um, but uh in terms of open source free and open source if anyone is listening to this right now writers need a free and open source alternative that allows you to do this kind of work so <clears throat> <laughs> yep yep all right. Well, that concludes my question. So any final thoughts, remarks, or promotions? <laughs> well, I, I would love to uh, take a brief moment to promote my, uh, my, own, my own podcast and my own writing group, which uh, you are actually going to be a guest on before too long here. <laughs> um, so Roundtable Writers is my organization, and I'm sure you'll find the link in the show notes. It's a group dedicated to supporting other writers. So our whole point is to support other writers and make other writers feel supported uh, to bring out the best that our community as a broad global community can possibly have. And other than that, I'd like to just really quickly direct people to two neat organizations. Every library, go ahead and support every library because libraries are really important and Socrates cafe democracy cafe, because communicating with other people and learning how to communicate effectively is also really important. <laughs> <laughs> Speculative sandbox is a volunteer run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Interested in being in a future episode? Our DMs are open, or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.